This morning I'm going to be um, talking a little bit about a trip that I took with the Unitarian Universalist College of Social Justice. And uh, if you're interested, I have up on the screen uh, the website where you can go to find out more about it. The UUSCJ hasn't been around that long, but it's an effort of the Unitarian Universalist Association and the Unitarian Universalist Service Committee. And I know we've had members of our congregation who traveled with the College for Social Justice to Haiti. Um, who, who was that? Can you raise your hand if you're one of those folks? There we go. So we've had several people who've traveled with them. There were two soldiers with large guns standing in the middle of the bridge, blocking our way. I was with a group of UU seminarians and ministers participating in a Unitarian Universalist College of Social Justice trip to Nicaragua. We were there to study how a small group of peasants, campesinos, had managed to defend their land against a foreign developer and even against their own government. Well, thankfully, the soldiers weren't particularly interested in us. We were driving away from the capital city, Managua. The soldiers were concerned with people going in the opposite direction. You see, on that day, campesinos from all parts of the country were headed to the capital to protest the largest infrastructure project in the world, the development of a canal cutting across Nicaragua, linking the Atlantic to the Pacific, a project with a $50 billion price tag that threatens to displace anywhere between 120,000 and 350,000 people, most of them small farmers, poor villagers, and indigenous people, and to contaminate Lake Nicaragua, the largest source of drinking water in the country. Now, this was two months ago, on November 30th, and I'll bet you didn't hear about it. The next day, we would learn that the protesters had been met along the way with police and anti-riot squads shooting rubber bullets and real ones. Roads had been blocked with felled trees or huge water-filled ditches, and many people chose to get out and walk all the way to Managua. Twenty people had gone missing, they were disappeared, and there were many wounded. It was a good thing for us that we were going in the opposite direction. We were going to meet with a group of people who call themselves the Guardians of the Yolska. The Yolska is a river that takes its name from the indigenous people who once lived in that area. In the midst of green and lush mountains in the central northern part of the country, the Yoska is sacred to the people who have lived there for hundreds of years. It is their primary source of drinking water and is critical to their way of life. The Guardians live in a municipality called Rancho Grande, made up of dozens of different communities scattered over a great distance with houses and small farms nestled up into the mountains. Without their knowledge or consent, the government of Nicaragua sold Rancho Grande out from under the people's feet. To make a profit, the mining rights for this area were sold to a large Canadian mining company. 
About five years ago, the company began exploring the land, poisoning the water with cyanide, which is used in drilling exploration. Suddenly, all the fish were dying. Then, in 2013, just days after that giant trans-Nicaraguan canal project was launched, the Canadian company began work in earnest on an open-pit gold mine at the top of a nearby mountain that threatened to devastate the Yoska and everything that depends on it. But the people of Rancho Grande did something. They reached out to international science organizations to collect and publish data about the state of their river. <clears throat> they established the Guardians of the Yauska Grip, a mostly leaderless horizontal structure with enormous power to mobilize people quickly, even over great distances in the mountains, even with terrible electricity and with unreliable cell phone reception. They gained solid support from interfaith leaders, Catholics, Evangelicals, Seventh-day Adventists, and from women's groups. And they reached out to the chief engineers of the mining company, and they sent letters and petitions to the National Assembly and to the Nicaraguan president. They conducted nine marches, even though they were routinely met with people throwing rocks and police confiscating driver's licenses and vehicle registrations. They spoke out in spite of a long history of violence in that country, and the result was nothing. Absolutely no response. But they kept up the struggle. When the mining company tried to buy the people's consent through gifts of free seeds, bicycles, and tennis shoes, the people turned down their offers. When the company offered free health care in exchange for compliance, the people said no. When the mining company sent pro-mining advocates into the local schools and put pressure on teachers to support the mine, the mothers of Rancho Grande kept their children home and they stood in protest at the gate. 1,600 children failed out of school that year because of their absence. When the press accused these mothers of impeding their children's right to an education, they countered that the right to water and to life was more important. When someone from our group of seminarians and ministers asked one of these mothers how she managed to do her regular homework and farming, even as she was taking care of the children at home and protesting at the school, she answered humbly, if you really want something, you have to be willing to give up something else. If you really want something, you have to be willing to give up something else. The story of Rancho Grande and the guardians of the Yosca is the story of sacrifice again and again. But they finally achieved some success. In 2015, government officials announced that the mine was suspended, that the project was unviable. Now, some say that this was an attempt on the part of the mining company and the government to get the guardians to let their guard down. But if so, it hasn't worked. They remain as vigilant as ever. For the guardians... 
Protection of their river isn't an abstract political idea. It is their very life. It is their faith. Over and over again, we were told that they felt it was their duty to fight for their land, not just for their own sake or their children's sakes, but for the sake of creation. For the guardians, fighting for the river is a sacred act. The earth is their holy mother. Protest is a prayer. Resistance is a sacrament. The river is its own creed. Now, as you might imagine, during this entire trip, I was haunted by thoughts of what was going on back in my own country. I thought especially of Standing Rock, another place where people are risking their lives for the sake of a sacred river, for the land, for their health, and for their faith that tells them that they and the river are one. Just this week, in the course of writing this sermon, an executive order was signed to advance the construction of the Dakota Access Pipeline and other environmentally destructive projects. Just this week, scientists who have spoken out about climate change and environmental degradation have been silenced. It's not just people who are under attack, but the land itself, the earth itself. And what are we going to do about it? For me, the guardians of the Yoska offer a model. They model the importance of face-to-face networking, horizontal organizations based on trust and honor, the willingness to make personal sacrifices, and the building of coalitions between different religious groups, feminists, scientists, and organizations working on behalf of marginalized communities and people. They model an absolute refusal to back down or be distracted. All these things are critical. But they also model a quality in their protest that I fear that some of us, particularly people like me, are sometimes lacking. And when I say people like me, I mean liberals with the best of intentions who have a little less skin in the game than some others. People who are a step removed from the greatest oppression, who don't have to worry about being held in detention or deported or turned away at the border after years of waiting for refuge, who don't have to worry about losing our basic rights because of who we love or how we worship, who don't have to worry about whether we will be arrested or killed just because of the color of our skin. For those of us with various kinds of privilege, it can be all too easy to say the struggle is just too hard. The guardians of the Yoska can keep fighting for their river in spite of everything because they believe they are fighting for their very souls for the spirit of the land and the people. And I find myself wondering, is my soul in this fight, the one we're in now, this fight for the sake of so many endangered people, for my country, for the people of other nations, but also for the earth itself, for the plants and animals and rivers? My mind is fully engaged, most definitely. 
I am ready to argue on Facebook for as long as it takes. But again and again, I ask myself, where in all of this is my spirit? Where is my faith? Where is my holy of holies? Because without that, there is little to keep my righteousness, my righteous anger, from just becoming self-righteousness. And there is little to keep my prophetic fire from fading into tepid antagonism. The Unitarian Universalist theologian Sharon Welch has a name for this problem. She calls it cultured despair. U.S. culture, she argues, has equated responsibility and maturity with only taking on actions that are likely to succeed. The more we understand the extent and complexity of injustice and the more unwinnable a situation appears, the more likely we are to see resistance as hopeless or even irresponsible, something that only people with nothing to lose do. The ability to hope in the face of continued defeat is soon crushed, and we resign ourselves to a horrible new normal. The guardians of the Yoska understand that they have only won a temporary victory in the suspension of mining. They fully expect that the struggle will continue beyond their lifetimes. They know that there is a very strong chance they will lose this battle, that the government will crack down, and the mining will resume. They've seen before how other towns have fought only to be crushed, only to have their water and their land destroyed. But they continue their struggle because it isn't about them. It isn't even about their children. It is about something bigger. It is about the river. And the river will go on like a never-ending movement for justice, slowly wearing down the rock. As the book of Job says, but the mountain falls and crumbles away and the rock is removed from its place. The waters wear away the stones. And justice does roll on like a river. The river flows and the landscape changes, sometimes quickly, sometimes over thousands of years. The river flows because it must, because it can't turn back. The river flows with a very long-term destination. The river flows with faith and trust into an ocean it has never seen before. The river flows not caring about what obstacles it will encounter and knowing that it will encounter obstacles. The river flows ancient and unworried about its maturity. The river flows sometimes as a flood and sometimes as the slow inevitability of erosion. The river flows. The river flows.